given the date on the calendar, December 25th, given the fact that the whole world is celebrating Christmas today, I thought that we would take a break from our study of 1 Corinthians. You know, if there is, to me, any one redeeming quality to the Christmas season, most of you know that I'm uh, not a big fan of the trappings of Christmas, but I'm not a complete Scrooge. If there is one redeeming value to the Christmas season, it's that it does force the world, like it or not, to think about the fact that Jesus came to the earth. And whether they accept that fact or whether they reject that fact, they have to confront that fact. And so I like the Christmas season for that reason. And so this morning we're going to talk about the incarnation of Christ, but I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. I hope that you all brought your Bibles with you, and you can turn to Luke 2, but we won't get there for about an hour. (laughs) And I don't want you to try to keep up with all the text that I'm going to read. I would prefer that you just listen and that you just absorb what I'm going to try to present this morning. The basic premise that I'm working off of this morning is that the incarnation, the baby in a manger in Bethlehem, that event which many Christians and many churches seem to think is the beginning of something, the beginning of Christianity, the beginning of God's work on the planet, sending his son, it's actually not. It's actually the culmination of nearly 4,000 years of prophecy about the fact that God was going to eventually send his son to the planet. So the very fact that the incarnation happened, the very fact that there is a babe in a manger, was not a surprise to anybody who knew their scripture, who knew their Old Testament prophecy. In fact, they had a great anticipation that God would one day do the very thing he promised to do for four millennia. Sometimes when I talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back, that he's coming to get his people and take us away to heaven, and that eventually there's going to be a new Jerusalem, there are people who disagree with that because they say, but it's been 2,000 years. Well, The Old Testament prophecies go back 4,000 years, and the anticipation grew and grew until finally there was a babe in a manger. But that was the culmination of 4,000 years of God saying that he was going to interrupt human history, and that he was going to send his son, and that his son was going to be the redeemer. His son was going to be born for a specific reason, not only to tell us about God, but to die as our substitute, to die as our redeemer. And so all of that is predicted in the Old Testament. And the fact that it happened, to me, seems like, well, naturally. Otherwise, God's not God. He made promises. He said he was going to do it. And then he finally did it. But it also gives me great anticipation and great confidence that he's going to do everything else he said. The things that he has said he's going to do since the incarnation are just as sure as all the promises 
that the incarnation would happen. And so I'm going to try this morning to show you some verses from the Old Testament as I started building this idea, this lesson. I was overwhelmed by the amount of material. And so I had to kind of limit the material. So I'm not going to talk about any of the passages that are Christophany passages. Do you know what I mean by that? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, a personage, a character arrives who is referred to as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, appears in the Old Testament several times, and the things that he says and the things that he does, it becomes apparent that he can't just be an angel the way we think of Michael or Gabriel, that it has to be part of the Godhead. It has to be the second person of the Godhead in his pre-incarnate state, interrupting human history to accomplish those things that God wanted accomplished. Okay, I'm going to have to skip all those passages this morning because I'm looking specifically for the prophecies that speak about the coming of Jesus. When Jesus was on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, he walked with a couple of his disciples who didn't know it was him, And he showed them at one point, the Bible says, he showed them all the things in the scripture pertaining to him. Now, of course, I believe that he was showing that the Messiah had to suffer and the Messiah had to die and the Messiah had to raise again, according to the scriptures. But Jesus himself has given us the authority of recognizing that in the wholeness, in the fullness of the word, It's written about him. And so this morning, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of passages that speak of him, that he's going to be here, that God is going to, I keep using this phrase, he's going to interrupt human history because the lamb slain since the foundation of the world has already been designated. And at the given time, at the specific time, in the fullness of time, to use Pauline language, God sent his son into the world. The God who is a God of set times, who made the Israelites all come to Jerusalem three times a year at feasts that were called set times. That God who is existing on a a calendar that he has laid out for all of human history in the fullness of time, he sent his son. But in the fullness of time, he's going to send his son again. And at the given moment, at the given interrupting moment, at the given plan since the before the foundation of the world, at that planned moment, he's going to accomplish again everything that God has sent him to do the same way that he did it the first time. So as I talk about the fact that he's coming and the incarnation is going to happen, I hope that is also a testimony and a reassurance to you that the second coming is also coming. You got all that? Got it. Okay. I'm going to scroll to the end of my notes because I actually see me scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. That's how much stuff I've got. I've got so much stuff. In fact, I've already made up my mind that what I'm going to have to do, because I'm never going to get through all of this, I'm going to post my notes on my blog. And all the parts I didn't get to, you'll have a chance to read for yourself. And if you don't know how to get to my blog, just go to our website, salvationbygrace.org. 
Look on the left side, there's a, there's a link there that says Jim's blog. Just click that and you'll get to it. It'll take you right to pastorjimmick.com. My notes will be posted there later today. But I specifically turned to Galatians 4.4 because I just quoted a little bit of Pauline theology where he says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay, what does that mean, he was born of a woman and born under the law? Well, if he was born of a woman, then it was God's intention that he be flesh and blood so that he could be the redeemer of people who are flesh and blood people. But also that he was born under the law. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was born to the Jews. He was born to the Israelites, the very people who had labored under the law of Moses for 1,400 years. But why was he born under the law? Paul goes on and says, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So who is he sent to redeem? He's the redeemer of Israel. He always has been. He always will be. We, by astounding grace, by overwhelming kindness, are adopted into the family of God. But the primary reason why Christ was born and born under the law was to redeem those who are under the law so that, Paul writing, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So we are adopted into the family, but Christ came to redeem those that were under the law. And never forget that because it will clear up a whole lot of things in your theology. All right, so I'm starting back in the book of Genesis. In fact, I'm starting in the third chapter of Genesis. You're never going to keep up with me, but I'll tell you what verses I'm reading to you. After Adam and Eve fell, after Eve was convinced that she should do the very thing that God said don't do, don't eat of that tree, the serpent came and beguiled Eve and told her that she should because her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. And so God then handed out punishments to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent. Starting at Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that a male descendant from her line was going to crush the head of that serpent and win completely over evil and over the prince of evil, Satan. The verse says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed And her seed, and he, suddenly there's a he. As soon as there was a sinner, as soon as there was rebellion, the people who fled and hid and sowed fig leaves and heard God walking in the cool of the day and and ran and hid themselves because they knew they were naked and they tried to cover it up with their own works, the works of their own hands, as soon as there was a rebellious running sinner... God starts talking about the he that's going to come. I find this fascinating. At the very beginning, God said, I will put enmity, againstness, I will separate Eve and the serpent. And between your seed and her seed, and he, her seed, will bruise you on your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The picture is obvious. His heel is going to be on your head. 
and he's going to crush Satan on our behalf. So right away, immediately, there's prophecies of a coming he, a coming him. I got grammatical all of a sudden at the very end there. Then in Genesis 9, 27, God said that he was going to come and he was going to dwell in the tents of Shem, which is really important language because the Shemites, the descendants of Shem, became the Israelites, became the Jews. To this very day, we talk about anti-Semitic. Well, that word, Semitic, goes back to Shemitic, to, to be descendants of Shem. And God said he was going to come and dwell in the tents of Shem. Genesis 9:27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him, let God dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Genesis 12:3. Through the Abrahamic covenant, all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And 12:3 says, and I will bless those who bless you, speaking to Abraham. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, in your descendants, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now there's going to be some descendant of Abraham, some seed of Abraham through whom all the earth is going to be blessed. There's a hymn coming. There's someone coming. Now, of course, the New Testament fulfillment of that, Paul picks it up. In places like Galatians 3.29 and says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.16, he said the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and he doesn't say and to seeds as referring to many, rather he refers to one and your seed, and Paul tells us, and that is Christ. So Paul's interpretation of the Abrahamic promise that through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed? Paul's explanation is, it's Christ who is that seed through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so that takes us back to Genesis again. Genesis 49, 8 to 11. Now, this is even more interesting because now there's a promise made to Abraham that through his seed, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But then Abraham has a son, his son has twin sons, and then the twin sons, the, the one that God chooses, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel, then has 12 sons who become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. So now God has to tell us through whom, through which of these 12 sons is the seed going to come? And that's exactly what we find in Genesis 49, 8 to 11. The promise is narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. So now, thousands of years before there's a babe in a manger, we find out that the Messiah is going to come through Judah. He's going to be called a Jew. Genesis 49, 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? Later, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, fulfilling this prophecy. Verse 10 says, the scepter, which is the sign of law giving and ruling, 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Okay, so now we know that not only is there a promise that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through a descendant of Abraham, but now we know that it's going to be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then it's going to be a descendant of Judah. So he's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then amazingly, we're told he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine, and he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. And when you get to the book of Revelation, and he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords, when he has a name on his vesture and on his thigh that no man knows, his vesture, his his clothing is dipped in blood. Exactly as predicted all the way back here, when Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel, speaks to his 12 sons and tells them what will befall them in the last days and says that through Judah, he's going to have the Messiah. He's going to have the descendant Shiloh, who's going to rule with a scepter forever and that his vesture will be dipped in blood. Sure enough, that's fulfilled in the book of Revelation. So again, all the way back in Genesis, someone's coming. Deuteronomy, we're, we're still not out of the Pentateuch. We're still in the books of Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, and you will listen to him. Moses said that the gathering of the people and the listening of the people will be to him. Ultimately, it's not about Moses. It's about the one who's going to come. God is going to give you, he's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. He's going to come up from among the Israelites, from among the Jews, and he's going to rule the people. Verse 16, Deuteronomy 18. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord in Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said to me, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his fire anymore or I will die. That all actually happened when God went up on the mountain and the mountain shook and the dark clouds came and the earth quaked. And the people said, that was really scary, Moses. You go talk to him. We don't want to be confronted by him anymore. And so Moses is saying, this is in accord to what you've said. You people have said that you want to hear from God, but you don't want to hear from him directly. So he's going to send you somebody. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. So I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about. That whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So now you've got Moses saying, someone's coming and he's far superior to me. The words that God himself speaks are going to be in the mouth of that one that's coming. And whoever doesn't hear him, I'll require it of them. So there's the prediction of the coming Messiah. There's the coming of punishment for not hearing him. All wrapped up back in the book of Deuteronomy. 
you really don't need the New Testament to preach the gospel. I can preach it from the law. I can preach it from the books of Moses because there is this constant drumbeat of someone's coming. Book of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 17 to 19. This is very interesting. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, which means a, a leader, shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter, a sign of rulership, shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly because one from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. Someone's coming. It's all over the place. It keeps showing up in the Old Testament, this promise that someone from Jacob is coming who will have absolute dominion. The next thing that happens on the stage of history is the Davidic covenant. You find it in 2 Samuel 7. You find it repeated because it's so important in 1 Chronicles 17. And it's elaborated on by David in Psalm 132. And the Davidic covenant says this. It says, now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you, a house for you. When your days are complete and you lay down with your fathers. In other words, you're going to die. You're not the dynasty I'm talking about. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. There it is again. There's a he coming, one who's going to be in the lineage of David now. So now that it's narrowed down yet again, not just the tribe of Judah, but now the lineage of David. This is why it's so important that on the day that we classically call Palm Sunday, though it didn't necessarily happen on a Sunday, but the triumphal entry into Jerusalem when people put palm branches in their and their coats, their clothes down on the ground in front of him when he rode on a donkey that no one had ever ridden before. When he came in, the people said, Hosanna to the son of David. That was really important nomenclature because they recognized him as the one who David had in mind when it was predicted that there was going to be a descendant of his who was going to have an everlasting dynasty. Not like the Davidic dynasty. David ruled for a while over the 12 tribes of Israel, but then he died. And God said right here, you're going to die. But there's one coming. And when he comes, I'm going to establish his kingdom, a kingdom that doesn't have any end to it, and he's going to be one of your 
descendants. There's someone coming. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever through him. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so now David has this promise that somebody who is a descendant of his is going to eventually sit on his throne. Now, what is David's throne? David's throne is where he ruled over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. And so when Christ comes back to rule and to reign, when the Messiah reigns, he's going to reign over the collective 12 tribes of Israel, just like David did. But then it gets even deeper. Psalm 118, David writing about the the Messiah. There are a whole lot of psalms that are known as messianic psalms. And the reason they're called that is because David is writing first person about things that have happened to him. And then all of a sudden he will launch into prophecies of things that didn't really happen to him. Things that didn't occur to him. Instead, he's writing about the things that are going to occur to his son, to the one who's coming. For instance, he predicted that the one who was coming was going to be rejected. In Psalm 118, starting at verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Okay, well, Jesus picked that up and and applied it to himself. He's the stone. He's the Not only the bread from heaven, but he's the stone that God was going to use to crush nations and crush kingdoms. He was rejected of men, but then, just like you read in the book of Acts, that Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were all gathered together to do whatever your hand determined to be done. Well, the same way, all the way back here with David, he said, these things that are going to occur, the rejection of the Messiah the one that people really ought to love, the one who does nothing but good, the son of God. When he comes, he's going to be rejected, even though he is the chief stone of God. And yet this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. That word marvelous doesn't mean the way we think of marvelous, not like you see it on TV by English commentators who go, oh, marvelous. We're not talking about that. We're talking about it's something that really made us Step back and marvel. Something that we step back and went, who could have figured this? That before the foundation of the world, God determined that he would send his son for the purpose of killing him so that we'd be saved. That's marvelous in our eyes. It ought to make us wonder at it. Well, in that same psalm, Psalm 118, that begins... In verse 22, by saying, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The next verse, you all know, because it says, and this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In context, where that fits is not, hey, it's Tuesday. Today is the day the Lord has made, which is the way people think of it. What David is saying is, God is going to send his son 
and have his son rejected to die in our place. And that day that God chose to do that is a day that is blessed by God. So let us rejoice and be glad in that event because it's marvelous to us. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Okay, so what is the analogy that people use so frequently of Christ? He's the light. He's the light of the world. He's the light that came into darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And all the way back here, David says, God's going to send us a light. Someone's coming. In Psalm 69, he said that he was also going to be betrayed. How does David know these things? Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor and all my enemies... All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am sick, and I look for sympathy, but there is none. And I look for comforters, but I found none. And then suddenly in verse 21, the focus changes, and he says, And they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That never happened to David. But Jesus, when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting from the Psalms. He was driving people back to the predictions of David, who had said, there's someone coming. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table become a snare, and when they are at peace, may it become a trap. Does that sound familiar? They'll say, peace, peace, but there will be no peace. Then comes sudden destruction. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. Really interesting language. They've persecuted Christ, the one who's coming, but it's God who really did the smiting. And he used men to accomplish it, but the Messiah who's coming is going to be rejected and be persecuted. They tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and am in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God in song and magnify him with thanksgiving. So here's David has now told us that the Messiah that's coming is going to be rejected and persecuted by men and God. Psalm 2, 1 to 12 says that he's going to be a conqueror and an enthroned ruler, even though all that's going to happen. Even though he's going to be persecuted and even though he's going to die at the hands of evil men who are going to kill him, nevertheless, he's going to rule and reign and come as a conqueror. Why do the nations 
conspire and the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Where did David get that? There's someone coming. There's an anointed one. There's a person, the son of God, still coming, and the people are going to rise up against him. And they're going to say, let us break off their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. And the one who is enthroned in heaven laughs, which I just find funny, that God is not amused, nor is he scared by the fact that people have rejected him. The one in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed, look at the next word, my king. I have installed my king in Zion, in Jerusalem, in Israel, on my holy mountain. Okay, that, that's Jerusalem. There's nowhere else to go with that. And I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, Okay, now David's talking about God having a son and declaring, this is my son. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. And therefore, you kings of the earth, Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. And verse 12 says, kiss the son. What son? Again, there's been no incarnation yet. And here's David saying, do obeisance to the son. God is going to send his son. Are you starting to get a feel for why there had to be an incarnation? Because the prophets kept saying it, kept foretelling it, kept giving details about it. The incarnation was a done deal. It had to happen. And now that it has, kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, and blessed are all those that take refuge in him. So here's David preaching the supremacy of Christ and where we're going to find our redemption and salvation and safety. We're going to find it in Christ, in the one who's coming. (laughs) For sake of time, I've got so much. Psalm 22 is going to tell us that Christ would die. He said, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Okay, now he's talking about the Messiah coming and dying and then describing it perfectly the way that death by crucifixion would occur. And yet, crucifixion as a means of death wouldn't be invented for another several hundred years. And yet David said that the Messiah was going to come and die some terrible, ignominious death that was exactly equal to crucifixion. How did he know this? Not only is somebody coming, but somebody's coming to die, and the way he's going to die is going to be that he's going to be, all his bones are going to be out of joint. And he's going to pour out his life like water. 
His tongue is going to be dried up in him, which is why David would also say, they gave me vinegar to drink. And that happened. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, then say that he's going to be resurrected. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. But then he says, and this cannot be David speaking first person about himself, because he didn't die and go to hell. And yet, Psalm 16 says, you would not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's exactly what happened. He resurrected. He did not decay. His body laid in a tomb for only three days, and then he got up again. And during those three days, he was in the heart of the earth, just the way he promised he would be. And then he came back after the three days because it was prophesied of him all the way back here in Psalm 16 that God was not going to leave him in Sheol and God was not going to allow the Holy One to see decay. You will make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 110, which you should know by now because we've referenced it so many times, says that he's going to rule. In fact, Jesus himself and Paul and the the, uh, apostolic writers quote from Psalm 10 repeatedly because the first verse says, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay, now wait a minute. This is David. He's king. He is Lord. He is ruler. And yet he refers to God as his Lord who then said to someone who David refers to as my Lord. That's another person, another person of the Trinity. And so David sees that one, the my Lord, and the Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) Okay, so now we're back at Genesis and we're back to Abraham going to war with the kings of the plains when he confronts a king of Salem, Jerusalem, He sees a king of Salem to whom he gives a tenth of all the spoils, whose name is Melchizedek, and it's the only place you ever see him in history. The writer of Hebrews writes a commentary on him and writes about him like he's a Christophany because I would agree and contend that only Christ can be the forebearer of the rulership that Christ would take over. But the writer of Hebrews says he has no father, he has no mother, he has no end of days. And so back here in the Psalms, David says that this one who is coming, who is his Lord, is going to be a priest forever, not after the order of the Levitical priests. He's going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, an entirely different priesthood. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush kings on his day of wrath. Does that sound like revelation to you? He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And he will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head up high. Okay, so 
David writing time and time again about the things that are going to occur in the life of Christ. In Psalms 40, he has Christ saying first person that in the entirety of the book, in the entirety of the Old Testament, it's written about him. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written about me. I delight to do your will, O my God, because your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. You know that I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. And I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. The congregation of Israel. David can't say that about himself. He's talking about the one who will come, who will say in the scroll of the book, in the entirety of the book, it's written about me. I can't even get out of the Psalms. And I've still got much more. Psalm 45, he's referred to as God forever. So this one, this Messiah to come, is referred to as God forever. You'll have to go to my blog and read it for yourself. Psalm 68 says that he ascended on high and that he led captivity captive. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar because you know it from the New Testament. But David wrote, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, and you have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed is the Lord who daily bears our burden, who is the God who is our salvation. That's fulfilled in Ephesians 4, 8 and 9. Paul writing about Christ says, therefore it says, and he quotes from the Psalms, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression that he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also the one who ascended far above all heavens so that he might, the next word's really important, fulfill all things. Because it's written about him over and over and over again. Okay, I'm out of the Psalms for the moment. You can go read the other ones yourself. Isaiah predicts that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. That detail is not left aside. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The language is really interesting that it says, for unto us. By the way, in Isaiah's thinking, who is us? Israel, unto us a child is born. And that's exactly what's going to happen. He's predicting that someone's coming and he's going to be a child. And he's the son of God. And he's going to be born, but unto us also a son is given. God gives his own son to us. And then the government will be upon his shoulders. When he came, did he take up the reins of government? No. Is Isaiah wrong? No, because when he comes back, look at everything else we read out of the Psalms. When he comes back, he's going to take up the reins of government and crush all the kings of the earth and establish his kingdom forever in keeping with the Davidic covenant. 
Matthew 1, 20 to 23 tells us, here's a, a New Testament fulfillment. But when he had considered this, Joseph, of whom you sang about this morning, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Oh, why did Joseph have to be a son of David? Well, because the Davidic covenant said so. He has to be born to a son of David. And if you look at the genealogy in the book of Matthew and the genealogy in the book of Luke, you find out that both Joseph and Mary came from the lineage of David. God got so lucky. (laughs) That is just remarkable. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son and you will call his name. In the Greek, it's Aesus. In the English, Jesus. In the Hebrew, it would have been Joshua, Jehoshua. And all of that means the Savior of the people. You're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill that thing that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He's quoting from Isaiah there. So Isaiah promised it, and it's fulfilled in Matthew. His birthplace, according to Micah 5, 2, is going to be Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me, from God, to be the ruler in Israel. And his goings, and his goings forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity, he was determined to be the lamb slain since before the foundation of the world. That was determined before there was the first person. And having been established, God could say, not only someone's coming, but he's going to come to Bethlehem. And then a governor who doesn't know anything about the Jewish religion decides that there's going to be a taxation and that all the people should go to their ancestral homelands in order to be taxed and in order to be counted so there could be a census. And that it had to happen at exactly the moment that Mary was ready to give birth. Again, God got so lucky. (laughs) And they left their home, which was Nazareth, because the prophets didn't say he'd be born in Nazareth. He had to be born in Bethlehem. And how did God get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? through a census and taxation by a foreign governor. Isn't this amazing? This just shows that God is in control of humans and human history so that he can accomplish his word. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.6 even quotes, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Did you know that John the Baptist was also prophesied about? The details aren't left out. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, talks about John the Baptist and says, A voice is calling. 
Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be laid low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain become a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Likewise, Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He's coming. Someone's coming. He's co- I just keep saying the incarnation, the baby in the manger isn't the beginning People think that's the beginning of God's work. Oh, finally, the Christ child came. We sing about it. But that's not the beginning. That's the culmination. That's the end of what God's been doing for thousands of years. Matthew 3.3 says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So Matthew confirms for us, that that prophecy from Isaiah was about John the Baptist. So again, the details are not left out. Mark 1, 1-4 says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is further announced way ahead of time that Messiah is going to enter Jerusalem in triumph. I mentioned a little while ago the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but not just that he was going to enter, but that the people were going to cry Hosanna and that he was going to ride on a colt, on a, on a donkey that nobody had ever ridden before. These seem like superfluous details. And God lays them out. This is how it's going to happen. Why do you think it was that when Jesus came to the city walls of Jerusalem that he said to his apostles, go through that gate and you're going to find a donkey tied up with its foal. Untie it. And when they say, what are you doing? Say the master has need of it and they're going to let you have him. He's in complete control of everything. And why did he have to enter Jerusalem on a donkey? Because prophecy said so. The Bible said so. The scripture had already laid out how you're going to know the Messiah. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to be the one who rides on a colt. He's going to do the miracles that no one else has ever done. He's going to speak of God like no one else ever has. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble. He is sitting on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horsemen from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's fulfilled in Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and they had come to Bethphage 
to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied there with a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt and the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples did that. I've got more, I've got more, I've got so much more. The people shouted to him, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They even called him the king of Israel. They said, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. And nevertheless, within a week, he would be betrayed and killed. And Psalm 41.9 said that. It said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. Talking about the fact that that Judas was going to betray him. That's predicted in the Psalms. Was it any surprise that Judas did what he did? No, because it was determined before the foundation of the world, which is why Jesus could say, I am the children you have given me, and none of them are lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Because it was written about Judas that he was going to do that very thing. Zechariah 12.10 says that Messiah's side is going to be pierced. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. How did Zechariah know that there was going to be a Roman guard who couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead because Jesus accomplished his own death And Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the Roman centurion couldn't believe that he had died that quickly. And so he put a spear through his side. And now they could look on him who they pierced. Just a small detail that said all the way back here in Zechariah. Because God's in complete control of what was going to happen. That's fulfilled in John 19, 36, 37 which says, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture that says, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Isaiah 53, you probably all know Isaiah 53 by now, says that he would suffer vicariously for the sins of his chosen people. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground so that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one for whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. By the way, you want to see the details? I just don't have time to preach all of this, but you want to see the details? He was assigned a grave with wicked men. He died with wicked men. He was surrounded by wicked men. But when it came time to talk about his grave, it was one rich man. How does Isaiah know this? That it's going to be one rich man that is the grave, but he's going to die among wicked men. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Wait a minute. A moment ago, you said he's dead. And now you're saying God will prolong his days. God's going to prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out in death, and he was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. I'm nearly to our text. (laughs) I'm getting real close. This is, in fact, all introduction. introduction. But are you enjoying this? Because I haven't gotten to the incarnation yet. I'm still prophesying the incarnation. I'm still showing you all the places in the Old Testament. Well, not even all. I'm showing you many places in the Old Testament that say someone's coming. But we haven't gotten to the coming part yet. That's the text. Isaiah 50 accurately describes the beating that Jesus endured. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. How did Isaiah know that detail? Roman centurions beat Jesus in the face and plucked off his beard. I do not cover my face from humiliation and from spitting. How do you know that? Jesus walked through the streets with that chunk of wood on his back as people spit at him. Jesus would be killed with all the wicked ones. And yet he was going to rise. Yet he was going to live. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 say that Messiah after his death and after his resurrection is going to return to the earth a second time. And establish his own kingdom. I kept looking in the night visions and behold 
With the clouds of heaven, there was one like the Son of Man who was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented to him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, the nations, and the men of every language might serve him. This is the culmination of the Abrahamic covenant, that all the families of the earth and all men are going to worship him and be blessed through him. And yet, this is before the incarnation, and David's already talking about him coming back. I mean, Daniel's already talking about the return of Christ in glory and honor in the clouds of heaven to receive his kingdom. God says, I will give to him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All the peoples, the nations, and the men of every language will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus predicts the fulfillment of that in Mark 13, 26, when he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great honor, great power, and glory. Luke 21, 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Do I have to even mention Daniel 77s? I don't have time to get into that. But even that marks the date of his crucifixion when he died not for himself but for others. So someone's coming, but the emphasis is not someone's coming and he is a baby in the manger. The baby in the manger part is how he comes. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. But what's he going to do? He's going to come and he's going to die and he's going to redeem his people. And then he's going to go into heaven. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. And then he's going to return in great power and great glory to set up his everlasting kingdom. All of that, including minute details like donkeys and drinking vinegar, all of that is predicted before he ever gets here. The chances that one man could satisfy all these prophecies is unfathomable. And yet he accomplished every one of them perfectly. That's amazing. Finally, turn to Luke 2. Luke 2, if it sounds familiar, it's because um, a little piece of this passage is what Linus tells Charlie Brown and the others at the Charlie Brown Christmas when they want to know what Christmas is about. Charles Schultz went to Luke 2. Starting at verse 1, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of all Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, her days were accomplished for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. Do those words now resonate with everything else you've heard this morning? Can you see why there was an angelic host? Can you see why this moment in time, this is the day that the Lord has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Can you see why the angels were all saying to the shepherds, this is good news because this has been predicted for 4,000 years and now it's happening and we've come to tell you that it's happening. I, by the way, I can't pass over the fact that you'll notice that the angels did not appear to everybody. They appeared to the people that God said, go tell them, bring them to see the Savior. Don't bring everybody. Don't stand in the middle of the street shouting out, come see the Savior. Go to the people I've chosen, bring them, introduce them to the Savior. The angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David which is Bethlehem, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be for a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace goodwill among men with whom he is well pleased and it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another let us go straight to Bethlehem then and let us see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us and they came in haste And they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which was told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things and was pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Here's my conclusion. (laughs) Here's my conclusion. God's really sovereign. God's really in control. God really knows what he's doing. And he decided it before he made Adam and Eve. And he determined the times and the places and the accomplishment and everything that Christ did. And part of what he purposed for Christ was that he was going to have a kingdom that was an everlasting kingdom that was unlike anything that has ever occurred on planet Earth and that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Everyone is going to say that Jesus is Lord. 
willingly or unwillingly, whether they bow the knee because they love him or whether he has to break their legs, they're getting down in front of him. God has determined this. And the same way that he determined things about the incarnation, that all came true, and the same way that he determined what the life of Christ was going to be like and how he was going to die and the appointed Passover he was going to die on and that he was going to raise again and pierce the heavens and sit at the right hand of God, all of which he did, all of which was determined, God has determined that that Christ is coming back and coming to get his people and taking his people to where he is so that we can honor and glorify and praise him forever. And that's the reason we're here. And that's all the plan of God. That's all in the Bible. That's all in the Bible. I haven't said anything to you that's not in the Bible. In fact, the vast majority of my words this morning were straight out of the Bible. People think, oh, you can't understand the Bible. I just read you the Bible for an hour and 20 minutes. Did you understand what I was getting at? Yes. Did you understand what the Bible said? Yes. It said God's in charge. Worship him. And I think that is a good Christmas message. Amen. So I'm done. (laughs) Here's the plan for next week. I want you all to think about something specific. I don't just mean think this week. (laughs) Here's my plan. (laughs) Next week, I'm planning that everyone's going to have a chance, anyone who wants to, to talk about 2016. How did you start 2016? How did you end 2016? And was God faithful in carrying you all the way through 2016. Tom and I used to be with a pastor who would start every year by saying, like 2017 is about to start. He would start every year by saying, we made it through 2017. Because he was so sure that God was going to take us through it. At the beginning of 2016, I should have said, we'll make it through 2016. So then next week I could say, see, (laughs) told you. God's faithful. He'll get us through it. And I think it's good every once in a while for us to just stop and remember how good God has been to us. There are going to be stories about hardship. There are going to be stories about difficulty. And there are going to be stories about God's faithfulness even in the midst of that. There are going to be stories of triumph. But the Bible says that we should share our joys and our sorrows with each other. And I like the phrase that says... A joy that's shared is twice the joy, and a sorrow that's shared is half the sorrow. So we're going to share next week, which means you have all this week to think about what you'd like to share with everybody. Now, if I get up here next week and say, who's first, and you got nothing, not only am I going to be sorely disappointed, but then you're going to make me go back to 1 Corinthians and preach. And and really, I'm looking forward to a week off and let you do the preaching. Because I think when everybody in the room hears from each of you and you talk about the God you serve and his faithfulness, everyone's collective faith will be built up. And isn't that kind of what we're studying in 1 Corinthians right now anyway? That everybody who shares their gifts with each other is for the good of the body. 
So that's our plan for next week. So give it some thought. Give it some serious thought. And don't you walk in here next week and say, oh, I forgot. (laughs) And don't say it in that voice either. (laughs) And I say that specifically to Danielle. (laughs) We can't imagine her going, oh, I forgot. (laughs) All right, you enjoy this morning. Are you glad you left your house on a Christmas morning to come to church? Well, I'm glad you were here too. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.